Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I'm Professor Robert Poulin. He's in the zoology department, University of Otago in New Zealand. And we're going to talk about um, parasites and how they affect their hosts and how they manipulate them, etc. So, Robert, thanks for coming. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Yeah. What, what got you interested in parasites? Uh, it was a complete accident, to be honest. Um, when I began my graduate research, I was looking at various factors that affect the behavior and ecology of fish. And within my first two, three days in the field collecting fish, I found parasites on them. Then I did some preliminary experiments, find out that they had a much greater impact on behavior than the things I was actually supposed to study, factors like food abundance or competition. And from that point on, I was, uh, I was hooked. I was uh, convinced that parasites matter and that became my career. Well, uh, parasites and what kind of hosts do you study and what kind of parasites? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of different parasites, a lot of different hosts, you know, are you, are you focused in an area? Yeah, you're right. Parasitism has actually evolved several hundred independent times uh, throughout the tree of life. So there are many different kinds of parasites. My favorites are flatworms known as trematodes or flukes. Uh, and these have been uh, studied in my lab for many, many years. But we are also looking at malaria in birds, a range of intracellular parasites in crustaceans, uh, trematodes in, in snails and um, fish. We have projects going on with tapeworms in birds. So really, we don't specialize on any particular parasites. We just uh, choose the best parasite for the question we're interest, interested in. Well, what are some of the big questions you're trying to answer? Well, uh, we've been really interested in how parasites take over the behavior of their host to make it do things that benefit the parasite. This is something that we've been studying for many, many years. Uh, this involves studying the actual behavioral change and when they appear in the host following infection and exactly what their benefits are for the parasite. And increasingly, we're also looking at the underlying mechanism, asking how the parasite can actually do this. Is it by secreting substances that it releases in the host that have uh, actions on its hormonal system, for instance, or is it by turning on or turning off certain genes at the right time so that the host itself does the work, or at least its genome produces the proteins that lead to behavioral changes. But at the very onset, it's the parasite determining. So these are the sort of, of well, questions that have been central to our work for many years. Yeah, if, if if scientists wanted to change the behavior of an organism, they would have to study it for a very long time to find out, you know, various pathways and methods, methods of action, etc. Um, so the fact is, parasites do this. We may not know exactly how they do it. But how do they? How do they even know that they can do such a thing? How do we know, or how do they know? How, how would how could a parasite even know that it could affect a host's behavior in such a way that it would benefit the parasite? How could the parasite do that? and engineer that outcome? Well, clearly the parasite uh, doesn't actually know these things, but 
over the course of evolution in a parasite population, there would have been variation amongst individual parasites in their precise impact on the host. And those that would change the host behavior in just a particular direction, just a little bit, may have achieved slightly greater transmission success than those that could not. So whatever genes were um, underpinning that particular ability would have been selected in the population, become more prevalent. And over time, perhaps the, uh, the uh, selection would have favored increases in their ability to change that particular behavior. So that after millions of years, you get parasites that uh, not through any particular um, uh, you know, voluntary actions, they actually uh, just uh, induce these behavioral changes through their physiology, the particular location in the host that they choose to infect and so on. And this has been gradually shaped by evolution so that the outcome is an impact on host behavior that is just what the parasite. Mm, okay. Do you think it's all random? But what are um, some of the most amazing ways in which parasites affect their host behavior? What are some examples that you know, you're, you're amazed by? Uh, there are many. Um, of course, we in my lab only study what is available to us locally. And perhaps one of the most striking local examples uh, involves a parasite known as a hairworm. These are actually long worms. They can reach you know, over two feet, three feet in length in some cases. But they come out of crickets and grasshoppers and praying mantises. So they are very long, but they somehow coil and fit inside a small insect. Of course, they begin at a very small size and they grow in, inside the insect until they reach these very long sizes. And when they reach this large size, they must come out of the insect, but they cannot live on land. They must end up in water. That's where they will find a mate and reproduce uh, during their short adult life. But as juveniles, they are parasitic, and they have to make their terrestrial insect host take them to water. So at the right time, what they do is they induce in the insect uh, some sort of a, a search mode where the insect looks for water and then jumps into it. Now, this is a completely unnatural behavior that you would not see in a very healthy insect. You only see that in these insects with these particular parasites. So they can create or trigger a completely novel behavior, a suicidal behavior, really, in their host at just the right time. And within seconds of being in the water, the parasite starts popping out of the insect. And it takes maybe a minute for the worm to come out. And after that, the insect is just a dead carcass left behind and the parasite does its own thing. So that's quite spectacular to see happening, actually. So what, at a certain trigger point, the parasite, what, it, it, it literally, what, burrows its way out of the insect and kills it on the way out? Or what do you mean? Yeah, it does. Uh, I mean, you, you've put it uh, quite simply, that, but that's exactly what happens. Uh, clearly, many of the essential organs inside the insects have been crushed or underdeveloped because the parasite takes so much room, and the parasite appears to keep the host alive until it's finished with, and then it just leaves the dead insect behind. What, what's a trigger event for it being finished with the, uh, the host? It must be size. The parasite must reach, reach a certain size, and when it reaches its adult size, then it's done. It has to come out. And that's when uh, it induces this behavioral change and causes the insect to find water. Huh. So the insect finds water and then it knows, okay, I'm in contact with water. And the parasite, you know, comes out of it and it's dead and that's it. And the parasite goes into the water and moves on. That's pretty much it. There's, um, you know, the, the, 
the exit point is the cloaca, which is um, the combined anus, and and you know that's the that's the exit point of everything from an insect, really. And yeah. in some cases, the the parasite can poke its head out so that it actually directly detects that they're in water. Uh, you can actually see the head of the parasite just poking out before the insect gets in the water. And when it's in, then the parasite knows because its head is in the water, and it just continues going out. And uh, it can take a long time because it's a very long worm, but normally within a couple of minutes, it's out. And uh, that's the end of the insect and the parasite. At that point, does not feed. It just looks for a mate. It will mate quickly. If it's a female, it will lay its eggs and then they die. So they have a very short adult life that is not parasitic. Huh. Any other so, really interesting uh, stories of you know, how parasites affect their hosts? Uh, there are multiple ones. Some of the best examples come from other places around the world, obviously. Um, there's a, a parasite that infects ants, but its transmission requires that it gets passed on to a bird, but not necessarily a bird that feeds on, uh, on, on ants. Uh, these could be birds that feed on small fruits like berries. And what the parasite does is that it changes the uh, rear end of the ant from black to bright red, and it causes these ants to perch themselves amongst patches of berries for hours at a time, waiting for a bird to come by and get fooled by their appearance, mistaking them for a berry to eat them. So, you know, that, that's quite another striking example of both a, a change in the morphology of the ant and its color, as well as in its behavior. Huh, that's crazy. So, again, what are you trying to figure out in particular? Is it, uh, you know, you see these instances of, you know, how parasites affect the host behavior. Well, that they do affect it, but uh, the how, what are the hows that you're working on? Well, if I go back to the cricket example, for instance, the, uh, the only work done on these sorts of parasites was done about 10, 15 years ago. And it suggested that if you look at the proteins that are present in the brains of insects that are parasitized versus those that are not, uh, you find a different set of proteins suggesting that uh, gene expression has been changed in these insects. So we're following on from that work now by actually looking more directly at gene expression. And our idea is to sample the parasites at different stages of their development inside the insect. So when they're very small, when they have a medium size, and when they have a large size, and also when they're in the process of coming out, and capturing the insects as, at these various stages, collecting their brain, and looking at which gene are expressed in uh, the, uh, the genome in the brain cells of the insect, just to see if we can uh, identify changes and exactly when they happen and to what genes. So this is ongoing work. It uh, hopefully will uh, reveal some pathways by which uh, the host behavior changes and it will tell us when these are initiated and so on. Of course, we're also comparing this to uh, insects that are uninfected and insects infected by other parasites just to control for potential changes in gene expression that may happen naturally in the insects as they age or that may be induced by other parasites that have no impacts on behavior. So the idea is just to try to pinpoint exactly what these particular parasites are doing, and now this leads to the behavioral change in the insect. Huh. What, uh, I mean, what are some of the mechanisms by which you're able to, uh, you think you're going to be able to figure out how it influences the host? I mean, are you looking at the genes of the parasite? Are you looking at, uh, you know, what, what well, signals do you, do you hope will uh, 
We're collecting RNA, which is the messenger between genes and protein synthesis. And uh, these RNA tell us uh, which genes are more or less expressed simply by the, the amount of RNA we can collect from the brain. Um, there's a range of different RNA that we can collect. Uh, and that means that, uh, you know, they, each of them represents a different, a different gene, but it, uh, it allows us to quantify which are underexpressed, which are overexpressed. So it's, it's almost as direct as you can get uh, at looking at the genes themselves. So that, that's the approach we're currently using in these systems. Well, I mean, so far, what is the, uh, you know, looking at the RNA told you? Any major breakthroughs or, uh, you know, what, yeah, what clues do you see that it's, uh, that it's giving you so far? Well, we only have preliminary results. They suggest that genes involved in, uh, in activity are, uh, uh, you know, their expression is altered towards the end. Also, uh, genes involved in uh, neurogenesis, so the, uh, the uh, duplication or repair of nerve cells, for instance. So these appear to be involved uh, towards the end. But uh, like I said, these are preliminary results. I, I, if we were doing this interview in a year, I could tell you more. Um, mm -hmm. okay. Certainly, we can, we can imagine how a change in activity, for instance, could lead to the insect uh, going on a search to find water, for instance. So maybe turning on these particular genes late in the infection actually leads to these changes. But it's not like uh, we, we know some genes in the genome of insects that code for finding water, for instance, and these get turned on at a particular time. There are no such genes in the insect, obviously. So it's probably a combination of multiple genes, and it's their combined uh, action that leads to the insect being attracted to water and jumping into it. Huh, interesting. Any idea on how, um, I don't know, where do you think the breakthrough's gonna come from? How do you think you're gonna figure this out? Well, hopefully we will find something interesting from this particular work. Increasingly, though, uh, I'm becoming interested in, in other potential mechanisms by which parasites can, uh, can alter their host. Uh, and these involve the, the microbes that the parasites carry with them. Um, as you know, there's been a lot of research into microbiomes in the past several years. Uh, the mm. communities of bacteria and viruses that permanently live inside larger organisms. Uh, I believe that, for instance, in humans, the latest estimates I've seen suggest that a typical human body has more bacterial cells than it has human cells. Of course, they're very small, so they only account for, I don't know, a pound maybe of, of, of our body, but still, it's, it's not insignificant. And smaller organisms, even parasitic worms, carry their own microbiomes, their, their, you know, their own set of microbes that are probably mostly transmitted vertically. That is, that they are passed on from parent parasite to offspring parasite. So they're really part of the parasite. And my next sort of goal research-wise would be to see how these little symbionts carried by a parasite may contribute to the parasite's ability to alter the host behavior. It could be that uh, the genes that actually trigger uh, the, the behavioral change in the host do not come from the parasite's own genome, but from the genome of the microbes that it carries with it. So this is the next sort of step we would like to get into. That's right. The parasites probably have their own microbiome and then virome, or at least phageome, that's uh, surrounding the microbes that are in them too. Yeah, yeah. we've actually uh, recently published a study that shows that uh, 
the trematodes, you know, I've mentioned those before as my favorite parasites. Uh, these little flatworms have complex life cycles. They have to go through three different host species in a particular order uh, just to complete a single generation. So think of this, for instance, as the baby parasites need a snail, then uh, they must transfer to a fish to become teenage parasites. And finally, if they're going to become adults, they have to reach a bird. So that's three different species in a particular order. They undergo uh, very pronounced morphological changes as they switch hosts. And we found recently that uh, despite all these drastic changes in both their morphology, but also in the different host habitats in which they live, uh, they maintain a core microbiome, a set of bacteria that sticks with them throughout their entire life, uh, persisting from one generation to the next. So clearly parasites do have microbiome. Now what these microbiomes do, if anything, uh, that's what we want to look into. Well, they've got to do something. Otherwise, why would they be with the parasite? Yeah, I would think the microbiome would change very dramatically depending on the host that the parasite's in, or if it's not in a host, and how do those microbiomes interact once it's in someone or in, you know, in a host, et cetera, or not? Well, I guess an all hypothesis could be that they're simply, uh, they're simply there for the ride. They exploit the parasite to some degree, obtaining uh, resources from the parasite without contributing anything to uh, the team. You know what I mean? Um, but I believe that they probably do something. There's been some research already on how the microbiomes of the host can uh, affect the interaction between parasites and hosts. So we know that um, hosts that have a certain um, microbiome can resist infection better than other individuals who don't have those particular microbes. Uh, or maybe they don't resist infection, but the effects of infection are less on them if they have certain microbes than others. So if the microbes of the host influence the interaction between host and parasite, why not the microbes of the parasite? So my, my guess is that these microbes play a big role. But again, it's, it's something that we're still working on. What about viruses? Did, I, I'm sorry, I did not hear you correctly. Did you say viruses? Yeah, have, have, uh, have people found viruses that uh, infect parasites themselves? Yes. Um, in fact, the only example, the only really good example we have so far of a parasite that changes its host's behavior uh, with the help of a microbe is actually a parasite that uses a virus. That's a study that was done in, um, in Canada, I believe, several years ago. Um, and when I said earlier microbiome, I do include viruses. So our plan is to characterize uh, both the bacteria and the viruses that are found in parasites. The, the whole lot I refer to as microbiome, just to, to use a single word for those two. Um, so yeah, yeah we definitely have to look at those. So what's the example that you're talking about? You said a, a parasite it, does it, it uses a virus to accomplish its parasitism, or what do you mean? Yeah, uh, this is just going from memory here. It's um, a parasitoid wasp, uh, which infects a, a ladybird beetle. Um, the wasp injects its egg inside the beetle. The larval, the larval wasp inside the beetle will grow to a relatively large size, and then it just pops out of the insect. This normally kills the insect, and this is why these sorts of wasps have been used as biological control agents. But in this particular case, the beetle 
uh, for a few days after the, uh, the parasite has emerged, instead of just dying immediately, will actually sit on top of the parasite and uh, it just shakes if any other predator, like a smaller insect or spider, approaches. Anything that might eat the parasite as it is pupating before it becomes an adult wasp, uh, it is kind of vulnerable there. So the, the beetle that used to host this parasite and that has been doomed by the parasite to die actually protects it for a few days. Now, this bodyguard behavior is apparently not induced or caused by the parasitoid wasp itself, but by a virus that the wasp carries and it releases inside the insect when it's growing in it. And then when it pops out, this virus causes the beetle to uh, act as a bodyguard for a few days until it dies. So this is a case where we've seen that a parasite is not directly manipulating the host, but it uses a symbiotic virus that it carries to do all the hard work. And if it happens in this one case, my guess is that the phenomenon is much more common and we're just yet to identify more examples. Like huh. Are there viruses, though, that seem to make parasites sick or stop them from being able to act or <clears throat> change how they act? Has that been observed? Uh, there must be some, but I'm not aware of any example. I know that recently some researchers have uh, found viruses in tapeworms and a range of other parasites, uh, but the impact of these viruses is at the moment unknown. They could be uh, beneficial to the parasite because they might uh, combine their efforts with the parasite to manipulate the parasite's host uh, or just to uh, combat its immune defenses and so on. Or they may be completely neutral. Uh, or they may, as you suggest, be uh, you know, pathogenic and virulent for the parasite, but we don't know yet. We're just at the stage where um, people are using modern molecular methods to identify uh, viruses in, inside the parasite. So, so the next step would be to figure out what the... It'd be funny if you had like a virus that attacks a parasite, but there's also like a, you know, a smaller virus that attacks the virus that attacks the parasite, and then the <laughs> parasite goes into a host, and then you know, it'd be like turtles all the way down. It'll be, it'll be funny to see like an example of something infected by a parasite, but again, that's infected by something else and something else and something else. And I wonder what the most stacked parasitic yeah. chain is, there is in biology. Yeah, the, the word hyperparasite is used to uh, refer to a, the parasite of a parasite. But obviously you cannot have a chain like this uh, for, you know, it, it cannot go at infinitum, obviously, because uh, you reach a size right. uh, below which nothing can live. Uh, viruses are not necessarily recognized as living things, but they're as small as it gets, really. Um, you might not get very far beyond the virus. But there are certainly larger uh, parasites that have parasites of their own, and these may also have small viruses that infect them. So I could see three or four levels of this uh, hyperparasitism as, as probably quite common, but not... Uh, uh, not documented very often so far. Yeah, it would just be funny to find something like that, like the ultimate parasite sandwich, you know, where there's four levels or five levels. Yeah, it would be nice to use, uh, to combat a particular parasitic disease, to use the parasite's own parasites to combat it. That would be very ironic. It would. <laughs> What's, um, in your mind, par I mean, it seems to me that parasites are really, really good at evading the host's immune defenses. Can you talk about that for maybe a few minutes? You know, what are some of the strategies there so they can live inside a host sometimes for quite a long time without the host uh, 
you know, getting rid of them. Yeah. Um, there's a range of different uh, approaches that parasites use to combat the, the immune system. Um, some of them uh, can actually uh, have very rapid turnover of their external surfaces. So as their surfaces are becoming uh, bound with anti, uh, antibodies from the host, uh, which will trigger an attack on them, they can actually shed their external surface and replace it with a new one underneath. A bit like you would just get rid of a, an old jumper that uh, is getting dirty and, and you have another clean one under. So that's one way of always sort of delaying the attack. Um, others coat themselves in molecules from the host, kind of as a disguise, so they're not recognized as foreign invaders. Of course, many parasites also live in parts of the host body where the immune system uh, cannot work as efficiently. For, uh, for a long time, it was thought, thought, thought that uh, the gut was such a place that parasites inside the digestive tract could not be reached by the immune system. We now know that that is not true, but it's probably a place where it's easier to resist the defenses of the host, which amounts to local inflammation or a greater production of mucus and so on. So probably most intestinal worms can resist that. Uh, if they have been co-evolving with the host for a long time, they would have evolved counter-adaptation. So basically, the, this is, you know, this I mentioned the co-evolution and so on. This is the process by which parasites can achieve uh, success within the host, even though they're being attacked. They have, um, as, as, in, as in any arms race, they have evolved counter-adaptations to any of the host defenses. And as the host defenses got more and more sophisticated over evolutionary time, well, so have the counter-adaptations of the parasites to avoid those. If they could not do this, then there would be no parasites. But practically every single animal species out there as a, at least one parasite species infecting it. So clearly parasites are very good at overcoming defense. What are some of the preferential like niches inside of a host that parasites go to? Like, do a lot of them go to the gut or are there ones that go to the brain? And you know, like, are there preferential tissues across a lot of hosts that seem to be, again, preferential places for parasites to hang out? Yeah, uh, two of them come to mind. The first is everything that is an external surface. Just think of uh, uh, lice, ticks, mites, uh, fleas. Uh, these thrive on the ex outsides of our body because these are easily accessible. The other easily accessible uh, location within the host is the gut. There's an obvious entry point. Often parasites don't have to do anything. They just have to sit around or uh, just uh, infect food and then they'll end up inside the host. And there's also an exit. They can release their eggs or dispersal stages through the feces of the host. So they don't have to do any mechanical work to get in or out. So the gut and the external surfaces are extremely popular sites for parasites. But you're right, you do find some in other places like the brain, like the liver. Uh, but to get there, they often are ingested first and then they migrate through the host to particular organs or tissues following a set of simple cues for which they are programmed to, uh, to identify and follow to end up in the right place. Um, yeah, but the majority would be in the gut or in, uh, on the outside surfaces. You also have many in the blood. Uh, these tend to use vectors. Malaria is a good example, for instance. Uh, the circulatory system is a closed system without an exit or an entry point. So parasites that uh, infect the blood 
generally require a blood-sucking insect or some other blood-sucking organism to get them, get them in and take them out of the blood system of one host and inject them in a different host. So you have also have quite a few blood parasites. Is there a name for parasites that stay as a single entity inside of a host versus ones that are more you know, distributed and diffuse? You know, there'll be thousands or millions of them inside of a host. Um, the parasites that multiply within the host have been referred to as microparasites. Micro does not necessarily refer to their size, although they tend to be very small. So these would be things like, um, well, malaria is a good example, but also smaller things like bacteria and viruses would, if you extend the definition, fit under that microparasite um, sort of definition. Uh, Macroparasites, which tend to be larger, are things that are acquired one by one from the outside world. So if you have six tapeworms in your gut at the moment, it means that you ingested Uh, the infective stages of six different tapeworms. However, if I take a blood sample from your blood and you're infected with malaria, I might find several individual malarial parasites infecting your blood cells, but they may come from a single infection. So you do have parasites that multiply within the host. If you get a single infection, you can have thousands of parasites in you after a few days. And you have parasites that come in one at a time and do not multiply with. In epidemiological theory and epidemiological modeling, these are treated separately because um, not only their impacts on the host, but the way they're transmitted uh, and so on are very different. Hmm. Do, do a lot of parasites, once they're inside a host, do they proliferate to many numbers or are there some that just create one more of themselves? Or I guess in certain hosts, they don't. They don't multiply. They'll just, what, they'll grow or hang out and move on to another host, like a final one. I think there's something called like an intermediate, like a determinant host or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I gave an example of an, a parasite that goes from an ant to a bird before. This is an example of a life cycle that we call complex. So it requires at least two different host species. Um, whether or not the parasites multiply within one of the intermediate hosts depends on the type of parasite. Uh, the trematodes that I study, for instance, that go from, as an example, from snails to fish to bird, they will multiply asexually within the snails. Uh, a single parasite entering a snail can make thousands of genetically identical copies of itself over the course of weeks or months, uh, and then these will go on to infect fish but within the fish, they won't multiply. And the ones in fish, when they end up in a bird, will reproduce and make eggs, but their numbers will not grow through reproduction within the bird. All the eggs will pass out of the bird and its feces to infect more snails. So there's a combination of um, multiplication within the host and, and transfer from one host species to another that make up these very complex life cycles. But things like... Uh, bacteria or malaria. Actually, malaria requires a vector. uh, But if we think, for instance, of a bacteria, uh, that typically will require a single host species to complete, you know, a full generation. And actually within that, an individual host, it can multiply many times. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to contact you or at least look at what you're doing, read papers and, uh, you know, see what's going on and what you're working on? Uh, my lab has a website, so that's probably the best way to, uh, to find out what we're doing, what we've been doing recently, and what we're planning to do. Uh, I could give you a link if you want. 
Yeah, okay, we can put that in the show notes. That would be great. Okay. Well, Robert, thank you for coming on. It's been very interesting. Well, nice talking with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.